And now we'll just jump right into Revelation 14. It's such a good bit of information the Lord has given us here because it's a reminder, friends, a reminder that if we really believe that this is the truth, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? The story is told about a man who was supposed to be the guy that holds the lantern when there's a problem ahead at a railroad stop. He was assigned to the responsibility of waving the lantern to warn them if there was a problem in the track ahead, in the dark especially. He was assigned to a particular station and he was stationed there. One terrible night, a train came rolling down the tracks. He knew there was a problem ahead and he ran out with his lantern and he flagged it, but the train roared right past, went off the end of the tracks and many people were hurt and even more killed. The man grieved about it for months, years, for the rest of his life. And on his deathbed, he called one of those that he'd worked with and they told him repeatedly it wasn't his fault. He had done what had been assigned to him. Even in the dark, he had flagged his lantern and, and yet the engineer had ignored it. And then came the terrible confession the man said, but I never lit the lantern. I waved it, but it was never lit. Friends, the end of the section in chapter 14 that we will read today begs us to light our lanterns, to wave them, and to clearly signal, bridge out ahead. We have with this passage the harvest of the earth. The harvest of the earth, and actually it is two harvests. The first one is the glorious harvest of the godly that will take place. My friend Dr. Madden read it so well, I'll read it one more time. The first three verses, 14 through 16. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud like a son of man with a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him and sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap. The hour of the reap has come and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Glorious harvest of the godly will take place. A common biblical image we see all the way through Old and New Testament is the grain harvest. And that's what seems to be what we have here. The harvester comes forward with a sickle. It is a harvest that he's waited for for a long time. It's not that the harvester couldn't have come sooner. He had to wait till the field was ripe. He had cultivated it. He had planted it. He had watered it. He would sheltered it. And he protected it. He alone knows the right time. And at the right time, he will step forward, ready to separate the wheat from the weeds. He'll gather the fruit and destroy the weeds. There is joy in this harvest, friends, even if there are those who are lost. Either way, the truth is the harvest is ripe. 
Let's break this down a little bit, shall we? The harvester with his crown on his head and thrown on the cloud is most definitely the Son of Man. You see him described that way in verse 14. The Son of Man. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, you see a similar picture. The Ancient of Days is seated on the white cloud. There he is reflected as the Son of Man, and we know that title, especially from the Gospels, that Jesus chooses for himself. The Son of Man. He is one who has full authority. He has absolute wisdom. And he's the one seated on a white cloud wearing a golden crown. This reality, this reality of his kingship secures us no matter what comes around the corner. This reality of his sovereignty, that he is in charge. Ha, he's in charge. It causes us to say, here we go. Wherever he leads us, we will follow the Son of Man commands the angel to harvest with a sharp sickle, and indeed he does. The harvester has a vital function to perform the righteous harvest. Under the command of Jesus himself and straight from the temple, this angel is commanded to reap, for the time is right. Have you ever looked around you and said, Jesus, when are you going to make things right? When are you going to set everything right? At what point in time are you going to make everything fall into the right places? If you are asking that question, you are in good company. Let's just say that for sure. We can say with absolute clarity that that question has been asked over and over and over again. When will Jesus make things right? Well, friends, that's the angelic announcement that we see right there at the tail of it the angelic announcement of divine timing. See it there again. The harvest is fully ripe. Right at the tail end of verse 15. God doesn't bring anything to season until its proper time. And when it is the right time, nothing will deter him from bringing it to fruit. And in the right time, God will use all of his wisdom, all of his strength, all of his authority, and he'll bring it all together. Can I tell you today, my friends, we are closer to heaven today than we've ever been. Gosh, I thought somebody would amen that. I'll amen it myself. Amen. And here's the reason that's good news. The timing of God is bringing it to pass. Now, some might say he's awful slow. Why doesn't he hurry up? How can his patience be so deep? How can his patience be so wide? I can't answer that, but I can say thank God it is, if only for me. If you're one who is here today and you're wondering why God hasn't done what you want him to yet, let your heart be anchored to this. The timing of God is always right, even if you don't think so. Now, there have been more than a few times that I've said, hey, Lord, I'm on a calendar here, and I've set my watch for just such a time. Could you, in all of your wisdom, see that you meet my schedule? After all, who better, right? The Lord is not interested in my timetables. That doesn't mean he doesn't care, but it means he has one that supersedes it. 
that stands supremely over it, and that is ruling and reigning at a level that I cannot get to. Not because I don't want to. I'd love to have that place. Wouldn't everybody? But it is because it's God's alone. So if I'm going to trust him to bring this harvest to pass, then I've got to trust that in the right time is when he'll do it. If you're one who is in a hurry, then I want you to write this down somewhere on your note sheet, somewhere in your Bible. At just the right time, God will bring it to pass. Jot that down now. At just the right time, God will bring it to pass. It won't be early. It sure won't be late. At just the right time, God will bring it to pass. I want you to take home a couple of things from this first section. One, stand confidently in Christ's rightful place. His crown is cure. We've talked a lot about crowns this week with Queen Elizabeth's passing. I'll tell you, I just pulled into our north parking lot coming back from a luncheon when I got word that she'd passed. And I obviously never met the queen and don't know any of the royal family, never seen any of them, although I visited Buckingham Palace as a tourist one time. And yet there was this profound sense of loss, sense of goodness. It was then that I saw a quote that she gave some years ago. She said, my hope and prayer is that the Lord Jesus will return during my lifetime, for I would like to lay my crown at his feet. Huh. Why is that? Because she recognized that her crown was not secure. It was hers for a season. But the crown of Jesus, friends, is for all time. This is why I encourage you to be mindful we are citizens of a better kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and it waits ahead for us. Not only that, we don't have to wait until we get there to act like citizens of heaven. We can start right now. And indeed, we should, if we haven't already. Letting the kingdom of heaven be exhibited in our life is the best way to show the king we represent, for his crown is secure. Here's the second thing that I want you, to, want you to write down, want you to take home with you. Judgment shall come in God's timing. Prepare accordingly. That's a phrase I've used a lot in this series. And some have said, what, what is it that you're getting at when you say that, Darren? You've said it repeatedly. The reason that I say that is because if you knew something was coming, then wouldn't you do something about it? If you knew this was ahead, wouldn't you prepare in accordance with that? Wouldn't you make sure that you were ready for that event? If you knew, if you knew the governor of Texas was coming to your home, wouldn't you at least dust the top of the refrigerator? Maybe that's just if I'm coming. I can't tell you how many of you have said that to me, as if that's the first thing I'm going to look at when I come to your home. How dirty is the top of the refrigerator? The truth is, if you come to my house, it's just as dirty as yours, and I can see it. And it bothers me not at all. Somebody can say amen to that, too. Judgment shall come in Christ's good timing. If we know that, then let's prepare for it. There is another harvest, though, and it isn't the glorious harvest. 
It's the one that begins in verses 17 through 20. It's the terrifying harvest of the ungodly, and it will take place as well. Let me read it again for you. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth where its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And there are two other angel harvesters who arrive at the direction of the lamb. Like the earlier harvester, he comes out of the temple and has a sharp sickle. We don't talk much about sickles as much as we might have in earlier days. I thought it might be appropriate to take a look at a picture of what a sickle looks like. Perhaps we can bring that photo I think I brought with me up. So this is a shorter version, one that would require you to be close. This is what you would use if you were harvesting grapes. The first harvest was of wheat. The second harvest is grapes. This sickle is sharpened to a razor's edge and allows them to come and move quickly as they swipe to and fro, bringing down the fruit and harvesting it for it had been planted for that very reason. Can I tell you, friends, this is the method that he uses. Like the earlier harvester, he comes out of the temple and has a sharp sickle. This sharp sickle is his instrument, and it is one that he will use well. The instructions to the harvesters are clear. The grapes are ripe. The grapes are ripe. It is just like the earlier one. At just the right time, the harvest shall come to bear. Just as the grapes are filled with the juice of their fruits, so are those who are filled to the full measure of wickedness. As the sickle strikes, it'll be shocking to those who believed it surely wouldn't come now, if at all. You know, you may say, well, this is different than what I expected, and yet you've heard this portion of Scripture many times before. You just might not recognize it. Here's a little project for you right quick. In the pew rack ahead of you, there is a hymnal. Yeah, that, that book that we used to use all the time. I want you to pick it up and turn to 645. Hymn 645, it's one that you'll know well. 645, on that page you'll find the battle hymn of the Republic. The first verse says this, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That line borrows from what I just read to you at the end of chapter 14. The grapes have been protected. The harvest has not yet come. And now, at the great timing and mercy of God, the time has fully come and the harvest has arrived. 
The grapes may disagree. They may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's not time yet. But they aren't the harvester. They're not the master of the harvest. They don't get a vote. This is a point that I wish to make clear to you. Because no matter where you find yourself, in the grain or in the grapes, we're reminded yet again of our twofold purpose of revelation. It's a word of encouragement to the godly, or in this context, to the grain. Things will not always be as they are. There is a better day ahead, a day of God's full and complete rest for you. For the grapes, for those who are outside of Christ, for those who have ignored God's gracious invitation and have said, Jesus, I don't want any part of it, there's a day coming for them too. It's a different day, but it's just as certain. And that day is described right here, the day of God's wrath, when they will be thrown into the winepress of God and find themselves crushed underfoot. Friends, this moment comes a lot faster than we think it will for some. And it is a lot slower than others would like, but it will no doubt arrive. The instructions to the angels, to these harvesters, is clear. The grapes are ripe. At just the right time, they will be harvested. Here we find the echoes of Armageddon. Let's say it clearly, the terror of Armageddon is where the wrath of God will fall. If you have a notes, a map section in your Bible, then I invite you to turn there and find the map of Israel. You'll find a city, it's marked variously, either Joppa or Haifa, depending on if it's a recent map or an ancient one. And if you were to draw a circle around it and draw a line roughly from there down to Jerusalem, there's a valley that flows that way. It doesn't go all the way to Jerusalem. It doesn't reach all the way to, to, to Haifa, the modern name for that city. And in the middle of it, you might find on that route, Mount Carmel. We call that thing by a variety of names. We'll talk about that in a moment. What I want to highlight for you right now is that that valley that I've just highlighted for you, we call the Megiddo Valley. And it's a natural wine press. It's a low spot. Nation of Israel drops down at that point. Some of the most fertile and rich land you'll find anywhere in the nation. It is here that the grapes of God's wrath will be cast and pressed out. Let's be clear, friends, this isn't about grapes. It's about people. And this valley, this low spot, is just as real and certain as it ever has been. Take a look at this picture of Megiddo. This is the city as it stands today. You can see how fertile and rich it is around it. The valley lies on either end of it. Mount Carmel stands at head over one end of it, 
You can see the city of Jerusalem almost on the other end. It's here in this valley that we believe this final battle will take place. We'll talk about it a lot when we get to chapter 16. Where do we get the name Armageddon? It's a rough translation of the phrase hill of Megiddo. Hill, Har of Megiddo, Armageddon. One location, many names. It goes by the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon Valley, Jezreel Valley, Esdralon Plains. This, friends, this is a place that is a narrow valley running down toward the Jordan River and ultimately on to Jerusalem. You stand on Mount Carmel and look one direction, you can see all the way to the Mediterranean. You look the other direction, you can see most of the way to the Jordan River. You look north, you can see Mount Hermon, a part of the Golan Heights and the tallest mountain in that region. Look south, you can almost see down to Jerusalem and the Dead Sea south of there. This battle that we are talking about that will be so bloody and so, so vindictive, it will take place here. But it's not the first battle that took place there. In 2 Kings 18, we see Sennacherib, the Assyrian leader who comes to attack Jerusalem. It's here in this same valley that 185,000 of his men fall. In the interbiblical time, when the Maccabees were in charge. If you're one who has a biblical history understanding, you remember the name Maccabee. If you're not, take it home and look at it. M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E-S. Take a look at it there. It's in this battle, that the Ma in, in this valley, the Maccabees overthrew their overlords. They're both foreshadows of the valley that will come. It is here in this valley, that God's judgment is thorough and complete. This final verse, verse 20, is one that has caused a great deal of consternation. Let me read it for you one more time. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 Stadia. If this verse is to be taken literally, it presents a gory scene. The city it mentions there, we believe, is Jerusalem. And this, we think, is a reflection of the location of the valley. And if we take it literally and we see it as such, the horse's bridle is somewhere between four and six feet in height. The valley itself, 1600 stadia, is roughly 183 miles. In order for it to flow that deep and wide, you need 8,690,460 liters of blood. If each person has five liters of blood, which is an approximation, you would need 1.7 billion people to give every drop of their blood to fill it that deep. This, friends, will be a horrible, gory, and graphic time of God's judgment. 
even if we take this passage figuratively, the battle will be so great, so intense, that it will seem as if the battle filled the valley that deeply. Even if we take it literal, figurative or literal, the judgment is still just as real. Make certain, friends, that we understand this moment will be a part of God's final judgment. I want to encourage you to recognize we have a responsibility, and it brings me back to the story that I started with. Take a look at this picture that I brought with me. Imagine that you were driving and you saw this, this, this bridge, and you went back and you found a road sign that had been knocked down that said bridge out. You would do everything in your power to put that sign up, to warn those who would come. Let me make clear what I mean by this. If we believe what we've just studied, then the doctrine of Armageddon and hell itself make the stakes too high to ignore. If we don't really believe it, then what are we doing in the first place? But if we do believe it, then it shouldn't be about hurting people's feelings or embarrassing ourselves or feeling like we are compromising our reputation. If we know the bridge is out ahead, we'll protect ourselves and others. We will make sure, friends, that we're doing everything we can to make sure others know what we really believe. What we really believe is what we'll talk about, especially with those we love even if it's hard. I'm back to where I started. For those of us in Christ, is your lamp lit? Maybe you're on the other side of that equation and you're the one racing past a bridge out sign and believing that that doesn't apply to you. Maybe, just maybe, today is your day. And you need to come forward and say, Darren, I need Jesus to be the Lord and master of my life. He's already Lord and master. I just want that in my life. I want to make it personal. I want to make it specific to me. Can you help me with that? The answer is yes, we can. Here's what we want you to do. If that's you, if you're one who would say, Jesus, I need to call on your name. You're the only one that's really in charge. Then here's what I want you to do. As soon as we stand up and sing, you start walking. Come right down here and you meet me and let's talk about how you can make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe you've already done that and you've never been baptized. Today's a great day to get that conversation started too. Come down and let's talk about it. You want to be a part of this church family? Come down and let's talk about how we can make that happen. This day is the one that God has given you to do business with him. Pray with me, won't you? And now, Lord Jesus... Because of who you are and because of your strength, because of your kindness, because of your patience, because of your love, you've given us this day to respond to you, 
You didn't have to give it to us. You could have come last night and called the whole thing to a halt, but you didn't. Your patience is at least this far. Let us not presume upon it any further, Lord Jesus. Let us respond to you right now. I pray, Father, for those who need to do so. Whether they're in this building or they're watching us online or on television, I pray that today is the day they will respond to you, Jesus. So now, will you do your work in this place, in our lives, all because of you, Lord Jesus. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.